Hello and welcome to Melee's Turnwheel, the series that takes a retroactive look at the Fire Emblem series chapter by chapter. I'm your host, Ime Melee Kirby, and today we're taking it back to chapters 18, 19, and 20 of Fire Emblem Thracia 776. I hope everyone is having a wonderful day. It is a beautiful fall morning, currently for me, when I'm recording this. 56 degrees outside, which is nice, you know, just, just long sleeve t-shirt weather. But it is 77 degrees in my apartment, which I know I complained about in the summertime being super hot. But the nice thing about it is that it is now uh, insulating the heat very well for the fall and hopefully the winter time. And I cannot wait to go out and enjoy the day. But before that, I wanted to record a little bit of this episode because I knew that I wasn't going to have time this weekend. And I really want to try to get this episode out sooner rather than later. So we're doing it now. So I'm very excited to get into these chapters and to start talking about them. But before we get ahead of ourselves, we need to go and answer that question that I asked you guys last episode, which is, which route do you prefer, A route or B route? At Biozilla said, it was a smart decision, albeit a frustrating one for me, to divide elements relevant to the narrative into two routes as opposed to leaving one route irrelevant. While Princess Miranda is an important figure in the Thracian Peninsula, I ultimately prefer Route A. It's satisfying to deliver Kempf his just desserts. Moreover, Leaf's reflection on the night Leinster fell is one of the best moments in the game in my book. Yeah, I, I mentioned this briefly in the episode, although I don't even know if I went into the full the full thought that I was having in the moment, but if you listen back to the episode, you can hear me kind of like start to hint at this, which is that it's a bummer in a sense that you need to play through this game multiple times to get the full picture. On the other hand, I kind of like that, and I think I'm only really bothered by it here because A, I don't like this game, and B, in other games, it's usually, like, more of a big deal, right? Like, in, in FE8, obviously, there's, like, the whole central focus of the, the middle part of the game is across this route split. So it makes more sense there, I feel like. But little two-chapter splits like this, giving you completely different pictures of the events of the game is a little bit frustrating. I know they do it again in FE6. I don't remember how much of the story is locked behind each route in that game. But I think for the most part, it's pretty much just more of the same, basically. It just focuses on like a different aspect of it. So, I don't know. I just think that replaying this whole game again for two chapters is like a little excessive but if you're gonna replay this game again anyway as i know a lot of people play these games more than once makes sense to to have that option to to get a different experience i guess i'm i'm a fan of route splits in general i think they're pretty good i just i think that for this one specifically i'm a little bit uh unhappy with kind of how the split happened but here we are Anyway, uh, Biozilla prefers A route, which I think is completely reasonable. I think it has a lot of good moments, especially in the gameplay, but also in the narrative. As he says, giving Kempf his just desserts is very satisfying. Love Kempf, he's a great villain. And I do also really enjoy that scene in the end of chapter 16a with Leaf reflecting on the night Leinster fell. That's a great moment, I agree. One of the best in the game for me as well. So yeah, I, I think I mentioned this already, but I prefer A route. Uh, I, gave, I feel like I did my best to give a pretty 
even-handed argument for both sides. But my personal preference is that I also prefer A route. Mostly for the gameplay, but also for some narrative moments that I think are better in A route. And then I got a few answers over on Discord as well. Mostly people saying A route. That wasn't really surprising to me. I did see a couple people say, not necessarily say B route was their favorite, but made me think of something that I hadn't considered as a reason for why someone might prefer B route, which is that B route is easier. I don't really see it that way personally because I I think that it like yes it requires less skill. You have to be less aware of like what's going on. But honestly to me that's not like if a map is an absolute slog to play, I don't know if I would consider that easier per se, but I could see the argument for sure. I'm sorry if I sound a little sick by the way. I'm not I, I don't I'm not sick. I, I at worst I have like a cold. I just feel a little congested this morning. I think I uh, I woke up with like a like a head cold, I guess would be the right word. I don't know, but all right. Now, for this episode's question, what I would like to know is who do you prefer between August and Dorius? Because I think they both have merit, especially after the events of the episode that we're about to talk about. Who do you prefer between Dorius and August? Because I think a lot of people, you know, have their preference for one or the other. I think, especially with the events of these chapters that we're about to talk about, I think Dorius has a lot more of a leg to stand on. Earlier, I think pretty much most people were going to agree that August is better. I could be wrong about that, but I, I would say probably most people prefer August to the, at that point. But then Dorius gets a cool moment here that we're going to talk about. I won't spoil it in case you're, you're not familiar with it yet, but. I mean, I guess that's kind of silly because I'm going to be talking about it in like half an hour anyway, but you know what I mean. Anyway, yeah, that's the question. August or Dorius? Tactician Bowl, let's go. Who do you prefer? I think I've made it pretty clear what, what team I'm on. We'll just have to see. Maybe after having another uh, little bit of time to think it over, maybe I'll change my mind. Who knows? All right, so with that done, we can go ahead and get started talking about our episodes for the chapter. Nope. Nope, not not that. Uh, we can go ahead. Fuck it, we're rolling with it. Starting with chapter 18, The Liberation of Leinster. So it opens up, surprise, surprise, on an enemy POV. This time we see Gustav, who we've heard a little bit about, talking to Xavier, who we've also heard a little bit about. Basically, I don't know if gaslighting is the right word, but essentially manipulating Xavier into making him feel like shit and saying like, hey, you betrayed these guys. There's no way they're ever going to take you back. You might as well just fight for me to the bitter end because you're going to die anyway. So you might as well give yourself the best possible chance. And Xavier agrees, saying like, yeah, I know that what I've done can never be forgiven. And I would rather die fighting them on the battlefield than just being executed for treason or whatever. So might as well. Then we switch over to Leaf, 
He's talking to August about how their army is split in two, which he questions the tactical efficacy of, but August says, no, don't worry about it. This is definitely what we got to do. This is an element of this game that I haven't really talked about, but I am going to mention it here because it is very relevant for this episode, especially both this chapter and next chapter, and actually also chapter 20, so it comes up a lot here. Essentially, unlike in later Fire Emblem games, you cannot switch around the placement of your units. You can in most Fire Emblem games. I think that actually you cannot in any Kaga game. Maybe FE3. I don't know enough about FE3. But in FE1 and 2, I know you can't. In FE4, all of your guys start in the castle anyway, so there's not really a point. And then in this game, you cannot switch around where your units start off the map on. Which can be frustrating in situations like this where it's like, oh, man, I really would have liked it if I could have a thief over on that side so that I could open a chest. Or, you know, if you have if you have two thieves and you want all the treasure, you have to deploy them on both sides, but then they end up on the same side and it's like, all right, great. Great, awesome. But this game gives you enough tools to deal with it. You can actually manipulate it. I've never really bothered with it, both, both because it seems like really annoying and I don't want to bother with it but also it seems kind of counterintuitive right like especially like this has to have been an intentional design choice people have hacked in the ability to do this which I think is a nice quality of life option personally I don't think I would ever play this game that way because of all the quality of life options I think that that one is honestly one that I'm more okay with because I think it leads to some interesting situations where you need to play around your characters being put in unfavorable positions. I think that that's actually one of my favorite elements of Fire Emblem games. I think maps that that make you do that are more interesting in general than maps that don't. And I think that this is a good example of that. I have many more. I think I've already talked about Chapter 7 from FE4. How it starts off, you know, you have Finn, Nana, and Leaf down at the bottom, which, hey, you know, uh, funny, funny coincidence that we're talking about that here, but we'll get to that. And you have to play with these suboptimal units that, you know, it would be completely pointless if you could just, like, arrange them in whatever way you wanted. It's kind of the same thing here, right? Where it's like, if everything went perfectly, it would be a little bit boring. So I'm fine with it, really. I don't think it's much of a problem. And I think in some instances, like next chapter, as we're about to see, it can actually really enhance the experience. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So they're talking about how to talk down Xavier. And August basically says, well, I mean, they tell you pretty explicitly how to do it, right? They say, hey, if you open the prison cell, and have the hostages come out and talk to the soldiers that are with Xavier, they will defect, and you can, you know, recruit him that way. You're now starting to see where this becomes a problem, right? So they give you that explanation. I'll talk a little bit more about recruiting Xavier in just a moment, but I think it's important to kind of, like, get a whole overview of this map. First of all, you're split up on two sides. There is a connecting point between the two sides of the map, but it's in the middle. So you're not going to get there until pretty late into the map, once most of the other enemies are gone. There are treasure chests on both sides, and enemies who are 
or thieves who are trying to get that treasure and steal it away. There's some pretty good stuff in here, a body ring, uh, most notably, although I've never actually been able to get the body ring. I tried a few times, I had to reset this map a bunch, and I never managed to pull it off. I don't know what you're supposed to do, but uh, I was never able to do it, so it's not that big of a deal. A body ring can be nice, but also who it doesn't really matter. It's not like it's a, like a super good stat booster. I don't know. There's also a scroll here in the top left. I think it's the Norun scroll, which is fitting because this is Leinster and this is where, you know, uh, the descendants of Norun have their seat of power. And then there's a couple other miscellaneous things that you can grab. Now, on the left side, there is a prison cell, which contains eight NPCs. And then if you look in the middle, you'll see that there's Xavier, and around him are 12 armor knights. Four of them are just regular Frege Imperial soldiers, but eight of them have portraits and names. And what you need to do is each NPC in the cell corresponds to a knight with a face. These are Leinster Knights, Xavier's subordinates that were talked about in 17b, who are like kin to him. And each of them need to speak to an NPC in the cell, at which point they will turn green and they'll start to try to, to run away, I think, basically. You need to do this for all eight guys and then talk to Xavier with Leaf, and then you can recruit him. This is a fucking nightmare in a lot of ways, and it is considered by many probably myself included, although we'll talk a little bit more about it, to be the hardest recruitment in the series. Now, I actually, I don't know if I got lucky or what the deal is, but I was able to find a pretty consistent way to do it, which I'm happy with, for sure. But it required a few things to go right. And I'll talk a little bit about it in just a moment. Let's talk about some of the things that make this a little bit easier, and then some of the things that make this a little bit harder. So, pros, on the pro side, on the things that make this easier side. If a Leinster Knight turns green and then dies, it doesn't matter. It still counts. Uh, now, that was it. <laughs> That's the only thing. Everything else about this whole situation is exists just to screw you over. So, the NPCs have zero stats across the board. They will die immediately. Um, most soldiers, I, I, I guess this is kind of kind of one other thing that makes it easier. They will not kill the civilians. The, the Leinster Knights will not attack the civilians, and the Frege Knights don't usually attack the civilians. They instead go to capture them, which you can kill them, and then the, the guy pops back out, and you're good to go. Now, on the other hand, what makes this frustrating is that if you turn one of these guys green the other Leinster Knights will attack him, and he can die, the Green Knight can die, but if he kills any of the Red Knights in retaliation, the Knights that you still have not changed into NPCs, that's, you know, you're out of luck. You have to turn all of them green before they are allowed to die. So it's very frustrating to see this in action because there's not, it's really difficult to find a consistent way to do this. There are ways, though. One of the most common recommendations is to use the sleep sword. If you have the sleep sword, you can use them to put one of the enemies to sleep. And the NPCs, thank God, 
can still talk to them and turn them into green units. Now, if you try to put Xavier to sleep, Leaf will not be able to talk to him because you cannot recruit somebody who is asleep, unfortunately. Or you cannot talk to somebody who is asleep. We saw this with Trude back in Chapter 12X. But you can put the green NPCs to sleep or you can put the Leinster Knights to sleep and the NPCs will still be able to talk to them and recruit them for the purposes of this task. Now, the most consistent way that I've found to do this, this is my first time recruiting Xavier, so maybe in the future I'll have a different method or whatever. But here's what I have figured out. So the first thing you need to do is you need to make sure that you have a unit who has, I think it needs to be at least 17 constitution or build, maybe 18. Someone with 20 is preferable just to make it easy and guarantee it, but you need to make sure that the armor knights cannot capture them, and I'm pretty sure they have a constat of, ooh, I believe it's, I believe it's 15 or 16, I don't remember which one, and then the variance is plus or minus 2. So it can be as high as 17 or 18. So you need someone who hits that, that build threshold. You could also just reset until you get lucky and roll everyone low on build. But there's eight characters that you need to worry about this for. So it's, it's probably better to just not bother. This is important, right? Because there's no, there's no mounting in this chapter. All foot unit or all horseback units or mounted units are going to be on foot for this chapter. So you can't get away with just having Finn or somebody on their horse and have them be not capturable that way. Okay, now once you got that, you need to make sure through some method, if you want to manipulate it, great. Otherwise, you'll have to get lucky, I guess, or have more than one that fits this qualification. But that unit needs to be on the right side of the map. And then meanwhile, the other thing you need is a sleep sword. It can just be one but you need a sleep sword and it needs to be on somebody who is on the left side near the prisoners. Once you have both of those things and you have them in the places you need them to be. Oh, and the 20 build guy needs to be pretty tanky because they're, they're still going to attack them. They're just not going to be able to capture them. And also you need some kind of method of attacking at range, but that's pretty easy. You could always just use like a flame sword or a bow or just magic. So once you have all of those things, you can start the map. You do everything you need to do, you save the chests, you kill the thieves, you block the reinforcements, that's important, there's a shitload of reinforcements in this map. A lot of them are very threatening, especially like dark mages and stuff. Once you have done all that, you position your high build guy, high bulk high build guy, in the right doorway, and you open it. That'll make the knights go after you, they'll bottleneck, right? So you can kill the Frege Knights with someone who can attack at range. Make sure you don't kill one of the Leinster Knights by accident. Oh, give them a scroll too, because I think these guys have killer weapons. So give them a scroll as well. And also make sure the high build guy is unequipped and doesn't have any weapons. There's a few steps you need to, to have this be consistent, but you'll get there eventually. Now, once it's just the Leinster Knights and they're all going after this one guy, and they're all bottlenecked in the corner. You open the left door. You need to bait Xavier to attack somebody in a position that will move him out of the way, 
and then he's stuck there. He's not going to do anything. The, the reason you do this is because otherwise the NPCs will just like walk right through his range and he'll go after them. You don't want that to happen. And maybe he doesn't attack them, but I didn't want to risk it, so I just I just had him go after one of my guys. He's pretty dangerous. He has a killer bow and a master axe. So just be prepared for that. Now, once you have done all of this, you have the guy with the sleep sword come in and bait the armor knights, the Leinster knights, one by one into going for him and hitting them with the sleep sword. You need to make sure that you're doing this in such a way where it doesn't make it impossible for the NPCs to like get to the other knights and things like that. There's some considerations you need to take into account here, but as long as you're being reasonably careful, you should be fine. Then, once all of that is done, all the knights are asleep, you open up the prisoner doors, and they will all automatically go to the guys they need to go to, turn them all green, and then you talk to Xavier and you recruit him. This is the most consistent strategy that I have found. I have not personally seen a more consistent strategy in any guides or YouTube videos or anything like that. At least not ones. There's also the, the method of nuking your hammer and staff to have Tinny, not Tinny, Tina, steal all of the Leinster Knight's weapons. That's also a possibility, but it requires you to burn like four hammer and staff uses and it's just not worth it. This is probably a more reliable method overall. I think you can make the argument that it was actually even intended to be done in a manner similar to this, because August does say at the beginning of the chapter, rescuing the hostages will require two teams working in tandem. And the only way that I can read that is that he's talking about something like this, where one group is baiting the Armonites, one group is rescuing the hostages and, and having them you know, do what they need to do. I don't know, though. I could be wrong. Now, once you've done all that, you can recruit Xavier, and we should talk about him now, because there's a lot to talk about here. This is going to be a long episode, I think, because there's a lot of different factors in all of these chapters, but Xavier is a pretty good character and a pretty good unit, I would say. He is an armor knight. We'll start with the, with the gameplay side of things. He is an armor knight, and that makes it kind of rough. I think he has a leadership star. Here, let me check before I start talking out of my ass. Yeah, he has one leadership star, so that's pretty cool. He's got decent stats, nothing really special, nothing to write home about. He has a zero pursuit critical, but what really makes him noteworthy is his weapon ranks. He has really good weapon ranks. He can use every type of weapon, sorry, every type of physical weapon, I should say. And he's decently good at swords. He's terrible with lances, but you could always give him like an iron lance or something if you wanted to. And then axes and bows, he has A rank in. So he can use every type of bow and axe in the game, except for, like, you know, personal ones. This makes him a great candidate for the Brave Bow, if you're not using Selfina or any other units who would use the Brave Bow, as I am not. So giving him the Brave Bow might be a good call. He has good skills, a cost, which is what Dagdar has, Pavis, or Pavice, I think it's Pavis which has a chance to nullify attacks and just make them not go through at all. And then Wrath, which we've already seen how broken that can be, especially on someone who can use 1-2 one, one, range weapons like the Master Axe, which he joins with, by the way. He joins with the Master Axe. So overall, he's a pretty good filler unit. I think that if you're looking for... This, this game has a lot of chapters where you're allowed to just take a ton of units. 
So having him around is definitely not a bad idea. He can fill a slot on your team if you just need somebody who's going to be competent and be able to do pretty basic combat. Really good defenses. So overall, I think he's he's pretty solid all around. In terms of his character, I actually quite like Xavier. I think he's a pretty standard like loyal knight guy. But I think the, the plight of him caring about these knights he's with so much to the point where he's not... He's like torn between doing what's right for the people he cares about versus doing what's right for his nation and his country. And I think the fact that it makes you arduously live that through the gameplay is really interesting. I've talked a lot of times about how Thracia really nails the gameplay story integration, and I'm going to talk about it a lot more, especially in the next chapter, but... Here, I think it, it is another great example how, you know, it's it's this very difficult task, which makes sense, right? Because if it was easy, he would have just done it himself. I think the only way that I would change this is to just make Xavier better, because I think that he's a good unit, but I think that for something like this, you should really be getting a great unit out of it, and it makes it more enticing, because I think the majority of people who are playing through this game, especially if they don't care about, like, completionism or... or full recruitment, they're just not going to bother, right? They're just, they're, they might try like once or twice and then be like, all right, this isn't worth it. And then just kill Xavier, which you could argue is maybe the point. But also I think that if he was a really good unit, it would make it more enticing for people. And then it would be like an actual, like I would, I, if I wasn't doing full recruitment for this podcast, I would not fucking ever recruit Xavier. He's not, never, never, ever, ever in a million years would I recruit Xavier if I was not intentionally doing a full recruitment podcast. But I am, so I had to come up with a, with a method. But my point is that if he was really good, more people would make that decision on their own instead of having it be based on like, oh, you know, I kind of want, I kind of want to get every character even if I'm not going to use them very much. I don't know. It's a nitpick, but I think it is something to consider for sure. Now, that is not the only noteworthy thing about this chapter. There is another thing that you can get from this chapter, and that is the secret card. The secret card is a recurring item throughout the series. I believe it was in FE 1 and 3, although I could be wrong about that. But this is the first time we're seeing it on this podcast because it was not in FE 4. What the secret card is, or sorry, the member card, what that does is if you have it in your inventory, you are able to visit secret shops in various maps throughout the game and in later games in the series as well. There are specific tiles on the map that if you have a unit with the member card, stand on those tiles, they can visit the secret shop, which has some really great weapons and items in there that you're going to want to buy. Now, in most games, this is definitely a worthwhile investment. Even if you need to go a little bit out of your way to get it, I think that that's, that's perfectly reasonable. There's some really good stuff you can get from these shops, including stat boosters, promotion items, uh, sometimes really good weapons, things that you wouldn't normally be able to get, especially not like repeatably. So it's really handy to have. Now, in this game, the way that you get the member card is by playing through this map and throughout the map, there are various soldiers. I think they all have javelins, because of course they do, because fuck you. And if you hover over them, you will see that they're not Frege, they are from Leinster. 
and you need to not kill any of these guys to get the master card. Now, this is frustrating, obviously, for a multitude of reasons. I will say that according to my sources, which may or may not be correct, I haven't done any digging into it personally, you can capture them and then release them, and it will still count as them being alive for the purposes of this check. Doing that, though, is a lot easier said than done, because frankly, they are suicidal and they will kill themselves on you on multiple occasions. I tried, I really did, I tried my best, I didn't go out of my way for it, but every time I restarted the map, I tried to do this, and it just wasn't working. I, I They kept suiciding off of me, and eventually I decided that this just wasn't this just wasn't going to happen, and I needed to be okay with that. I will be sure to mention any secret shops that we see in the future, and what you will be able to buy there if you decide to go through with this and get the member card, but for me, for my playthrough, I'm not going to be bothering with this, because it's not worth it. In later games, the member card is typically a lot easier to get, although still usually a challenge, and... In those games, it's more worth it. Sometimes it's also called the VIP card, I guess, if, you, if you've if you played, like, the, I think the DS games do that. So expect more from that in the future, but I did not get it in this game, and I probably never will, because it does not seem like it's worth it to me personally. They also just have, like, really, really low stats, so if they attack you, even if it's a pretty weak unit that they're going for, they will still probably die just because their stats are so bad anyway with all of that out of the way we can finally capture the gate or the uh the throne in this case kill gustav and end chapter 18 now this is a huge victory for leaf both in terms of like actual resources because now he has this whole castle to operate from but also morally this is huge for his group a lot of the people here really care about leinster especially like, you know, Finn and, you know, his uh, Dorius and a lot of the guys who are working with him who are from Leinster nobility. So this is a huge win for them, and they're very excited about it. There's a nice little scene here with Finn and Leaf. I mean, it's very, very short. It's just two lines, but Finn says that he doesn't have the words basically to express how happy he is, and that's just so sweet. I love Leaf. Now, after this, Leaf decides that he wants to keep the ball rolling. Depending on whether or not you have Miranda, the scene here is a little bit different. If Miranda is alive and she's with you, she will come up to Leaf and say, Hey, I need you to keep your promise right now. And I really don't like this version of the scene. And we'll talk about this. I'm going to do a whole, I think at the end of the episode, probably, I'm going to do a whole overview of how I feel about this entire thing, all the aspects of it. And for now, I'm just going to give you the straight facts of what happened. And I'm going to save my opinions on them for later. Um, so that one snuck out. But for the most part, I'm just going to be telling you straight up and down what happens. If Miranda is there, she says, Leaf, I need you to keep your promise. And Leaf says, okay, I'm going to go and capture Ulster right now. If Miranda is not there with you, instead it is a random woman from Ulster who comes up to Leaf and says, hey, Ulster is in a really bad situation. And there's been a rebellion against the Empire 
and the citizenry does not stand the chance, so you need to go and help them. Now, in both situations, Leif decides, yes, I'm going to go to Alster, and I'm going to commit troops there and save the people. Both Dorius and August are against this plan. They say, Leif, we need to talk about this. We are exhausted. We just got this huge victory, but we are still in shambles right now because we're ju we just got back Leinster. We don't have the manpower to do this. For once, both Dorius and August agree on something, which is pretty interesting. But Leif ignores both of them and decides to go to Ulster anyway. In fact, he gets a little uppity with them. He even says, Dorius, August, you would have me stand idly by and let the people of Ulster be wiped out? They sheltered me when I was but an infant, and it was Queen Ithens? I don't know how to pronounce that. It was the Queen's love and care that kept me alive. Father would never forgive me if I didn't repay their kindness. If you can't understand that, you can just wait in this damn castle. And August snaps right back and says, How disappointing. I'd hoped you'd grown into a man, but you still think like a child. Now, Dorius agrees to it. He says, Fine, I will go, but I'm going to lead half of our army. Not the whole thing, just half of it. Because we just don't have the manpower to do this. They're exhausted. They're not going to be able to make it through this if we push them that hard. And Leif says, okay. Now, there's a little bit of a silent understanding here between Dorius and August. We're not privy to their internal thoughts, obviously. But August seems to understand that something is going on and actually offers to lead the vanguard instead. But Dorius says, no, August, you need to stay with Leif and guide him further and eventually August says, okay, fine, I will, I will do that. And Dorius leaves. Right before he leaves, though, he goes to Leif and says, hey, you finally got back, Leinster. Good job. You are now a true and proper ruler. You are a prince. And don't forget that, or something like that. And Leif agrees and says, okay, I'll keep that in mind. And this is where Leif promotes. Having the lords have fixed promotion points is pretty standard throughout the series. It's it's probably about a 50-50 split for ones that do versus ones that don't. So this is where Leaf's stats finally become unshackled. He can get level ups again. He was all he was already pretty good. Like he's he's a solid unit. He already he got a couple of move level ups for me early on if you remember. So he's he's doing pretty well. But now I can get him level ups again and he's going to be getting stats and it's, it's going to be nice. It's going to be great. But with that Dorius leaves, and that is the end of chapter 18. Now, as I said, I'm going to be talking about all of this at the end, so rather than deliberating, I'm going to go ahead and move right into the next chapter, whose title might give you a little bit of a clue of what we're about to see, uh, but it's called Chapter 19, The Empire's Retaliation. This chapter starts with a messenger coming to Leaf and saying, I am from the Vanguard that we sent to Alster ahead of you, and it has been completely wiped out. Everyone's gone. Some of us managed to escape, but Dorius died in the process. He used himself as a diversion to give everyone else time to escape. Leaf kind of sinks into his own despair a little bit here, but 
Dorius manages to snap him out of it and say, Leaf, we gotta get going, we gotta pull our troops back, or else Dorius will have died for nothing. At which point we get to an enemy POV. Hey, hey, a chapter that didn't start with an enemy POV. <laughs> Instead, we get one now. And basically, Bloom says, hey, he talks to the boss and he says, hey, go capture Leinster. We've already wiped everyone out. We got to go get Leinster. Then the scene cuts to a couple of familiar faces. If Amalda and Connemore are still alive, then they will show up here. One of them will always be alive. But in this case, uh, Amalda, I took B-Route. Amalda is on B-Route and I did kill Amalda. So Amalda is not here. But Connemore is. And Amalda would be if you left her alive. Same for A-Route. Amalda is always going to be there. But Connemore could potentially not be if you killed him. But he might be if you didn't kill him. We'll talk about their recruitment in just a minute. The way the map is set up is very interesting. It is a long, vertical stretch. With one half of your army starting at the bottom. And one half of your army starting at the top. It's an escape map. But the catch is that Leaf starts right next to the escape point. So, and along with, with about half of the guys you deploy. Now, theoretically, you could just have everyone near Leaf retreat into the castle, and then have Leaf retreat into the castle, and end the map immediately. So the challenge of this map is not actually beating it. That's incredibly easy. You could do it on turn one with zero effort. The trick of this map is deciding how many of your units are you willing and able to save in the process. Because on the bottom half of the map are the units that went with Dorius to capture Ulster and that failed and are trying to escape. There are also some NPCs there as well that give you, uh, I believe it's a, what is it, a Master Seal? If they all escape? Yes, it's a Master Seal. So it has that going for it as well. There's also a few houses None of them have particularly good items. There's a couple of heal staves. There's some holy water. Some decent weapons. The only really notable thing is a speed ring. Oh, and I guess holy water and magic up staffs are good. There's also a magic up staff. So, decent items for sure. But not the end of the world if you skip out on them. So, really... The trick here is how many of your units are you going to try to save? And how many of your units are going to die in the process? Now, I've teased this out a couple times before, but I'm going to say it right here, just to get it out of the way. This is probably my favorite chapter in the game, almost certainly my favorite chapter in the game, and I would go as far as to say top 10, maybe even top 5 maps in the entire series for me. There are a number of things I really like about it, but I think maybe my favorite part of it is how it incorporates mechanics that I've talked about, some of which I've even complained about in the past, and fuse them together to make this really excellent gameplay story experience. The fact that you can't rearrange your characters on the preps menu is huge, because if you could, then you could just deploy a bunch of shitters that you don't care about, have them all start on the bottom, and then just leave. <laughs> and leave all those guys behind because you don't care about them. No. You don't know who's going to end up where. So you could very easily end up with characters that you really care about, like Orson, or Finn, 
or Dagdar on the bottom. And what, are you just going to leave them behind? I mean, maybe. But you need to weigh that option. Like, is it worth it to be without these guys so that I can get out of here safely and unharmed? The fact that Leaf needs to be the last person to escape or else everybody else gets captured is a mechanic that I've complained about in the past. I don't know if I've complained about it. I think I've complained about the way the game conveyed it, but I think it's like a fine mechanic most of the time. It doesn't really make that much of a difference. But here it is used to absolutely great effect because if it was just like any other escape map in the series or any other game's version of an escape map, you would just have Leaf Escape turn one and the whole conceit would be completely ruined. One mechanic that I haven't even talked about up to this point is minimum deployment. Most, uh, maybe I have talked about this actually, it's starting to ring a bell, but most games don't really have a requirement for how many units you need to deploy. Obviously the, the Lord is required in most games to be deployed, but usually that's it. And then if you're doing like a skirmish or something, the minimum is typically one, maybe two or three, depending on the circumstances. But in this game, every map has a minimum deployment. You need to deploy Again, depends on the map, but some maps are like 6, 8, 10. It doesn't really matter because you're probably going to be deploying a bunch of units anyway. But here it's used to really good effect because the minimum deployment and the maximum deployment is very similar. They're very close together. So you need to deploy a bunch of units even if you don't want to so that the effect of this map is maximized. All of these elements coming together to make an experience that really puts you in the shoes of Leaf. You need to play this out. You are not just seeing Leaf either rescue or give up on his men in a cutscene. You need to make that decision. Are you going to rescue all of these guys or are you going to just make a break for it and run away? Are you going to rescue some of them but not all of them? Are you going to let some of them get captured? Playing this game blind, this is the only the only time that I will ever acknowledge playing blind as a benefit, because if you're not playing blind, the impact of this is lessened a lot by the fact that you know you're getting these guys back very soon. In just a couple of chapters, in chapter 21X, we are going to be visiting a prison camp, at which point we will be able to get all of the characters who have been captured over the course of the game back. And there's only a couple of chapters until we reach that point, so losing characters here really isn't that big of a deal. But on your first playthrough, if you're playing blind, you do not know that. So you really have that pressure to like decide what is going to what is going to happen, what am I going to do here? Now, my choice in this was pretty limited because I am doing full recruitment, so I needed to at least recruit Connemore, which makes it impossible for me to just book it on turn one. But it is still a really interesting conceit to a map, and I like it a lot. It is maybe the single best piece of gameplay story integration in the entire series. And I think, I, I mean, I've already said this, but I think it bears repeating, it is probably my favorite chapter in the game just because of how interesting this setup is, how it really enhances the story in so many interesting ways, and I don't know, I just think, I think it's excellent. Now, if you are going to try to play this chapter regularly, you are going to have to make note of a couple things. 
First of all, the guys on the bottom are actually pretty fucking strong, so it might honestly be better to let your units get captured than risk having them be killed. But if you are able to, you know, if you have some good units down there, I had like Fergus, I had a couple of guys who were really strong, they can make some good headway. Nana really got to see some action this chapter, which I was a fan of. Now the problem is that reinforcements just keep coming and coming and coming and coming. So you are going to have to make a break for it eventually. But you do have enough time where you can, you know, get some houses, recruit whichever character you're going to want to recruit, and then go from there. Sending out guys from the top to help is also a pretty good idea. Although most of the main action is probably going to be over by the time they get there, but, you know, kind of depends on, on how things go, I guess. Connemore and Amalda. As I've mentioned before, you recruit Amalda by talking to her with Sleuth, and you recruit Connemore by talking to him with Miranda. Amalda actually gives you a hint as to how to recruit her in this chapter. I mean, she doesn't really give you a hint. She gives you the answer. Uh, she says, Father Sleuth, what I wouldn't give for your counsel right about now, or something like that. So that's pretty explicit. Connemore does not give you that explicit reasoning, although I think you can pretty much infer based on previous events that you recruit him with Miranda. It's not that difficult to figure out. Let's talk about Amalda first, because I'm not, I don't have her, I'm not going to be using her, so we might as well talk about her here. Amalda is a paladin, uh, but she's a female paladin, so kind of like what Nana is. She, not kind of like, she is, it is exactly what, what she is. Um, she uses swords and staffs, and she has pretty decent stats, and yeah. That's it. <laughs> that's that's really all there is to her. She got decent growth rates, but ultimately you're you're you know you're recruiting a very decent combat unit slash staff bot who's not going to be around for very many chapters where she can actually be on her horse. Although she does have a rank in swords, so even if you need to bring her to a map where she's going to be on foot indoors, she can still use good weapons. So that's pretty good. As a character, I've already talked about her a lot, so I'm going to keep this pretty brief. She's a pretty tragic character, honestly. She's a very idealistic young woman, or she was, I don't know how old she is, but like she joined the Knights as a, an idealistic young woman who wanted to do good and who wanted to be someone who could, who could do right in the world. And now she is realizing that she is enlisted on the wrong side, and she is doing her best to help from the inside while also protecting her subordinates because her subordinates you know she she cares about them you know she likes them um and she she's mostly upset with the people above her who are making all these decisions i've compared her i think a couple times now to schindler from schindler's list and again i think that that's really just the best way to like synopsize her character uh, but past that, I don't really have anything else to say about her. She's pretty good. She's a pretty good character. She's a pretty good unit. I'm, I'm a fan. I like her. Now, Connemore is also a paladin. And he is the same deal, right? He has, uh, except instead of staves, he uses lances. So let me check his... Uh... Right, so he, he has dual A ranks, which is really nice. So he can use every lance and every sword in the game. Again, if you want to bring him to a, a map where he has to be on foot... He can still use really good swords. He has good growth rates, decent base stats. Uh, for this point in the game, his base stats are actually pretty low, 
but you can get them up pretty quickly, especially with scrolls. You know, he's he's okay. He's he's a perfectly serviceable filler unit, just like Amalda. Although I think I prefer Amalda just because I think the staffing is is better, even if she's not A rank. Amalda only had C rank staffs. I don't know if I mentioned that, but oh, deviating a little bit here. But if I don't say this now, I'm going to forget it. Uh, last episode, I said that Sarah had a low staff rank. I was very wrong. She joins with B staffs, and on promotion, she gets A staffs immediately. So that's another reason to use her. So just minor correction there, because that's a very important distinction to make. Now, where was I? Yes, so Connemore, uh, gameplay unit, he's fine. As a character, I actually really fucking don't like Connemore. I think he's a piece of shit, and I despise him a lot. And this is my bias showing, right? I mean, I think it's most people's bias to feel this way, but putting ourselves in the shoes of a knight of a royal family whom he feels genuinely very invested in protecting, it is understandable. However, the fact that he has let so many fucking innocent people die to protect one person is just genuinely so fucking disgusting to me. Like... It's, it's awful, right? Like, no, like, I understand that she's the royal princess of Alster or whatever, but why is one person's life worth so much to him to the point where he's even willing to kill his, his people? He's actively pursuing them. I don't think the enemies actually kill them here, which is interesting. I don't know what that's about, but he is he is facilitating and preventing them from escaping and who knows what's going to happen to them if they if they get brought back to Alster they're probably going to die many people have died already and in fact if you remember back in the last chapter no actually sorry it's the yeah the last chapter the last chapter when the lady the random lady who was not Miranda said hey please come help us save Alster and prince leaf was like what about Connemore? And they said, well, we asked Connemore for help, and he said to wait. And we got tired of waiting and fought back ourselves, but we lost. So Connemore is directly responsible for a lot of the shit that is happening right now. And it's all to protect Miranda, who, frankly, I don't really like that much either. So Dorius, not Dorius, I love Dorius, Connemore can go fuck himself. And I, I think that he's kind of a, a piece of shit loser. But, it's not that important. Connemore is decent in gameplay. Now, as I was escaping, uh, I managed to get everybody out, including the civilians. Everyone escaped, except for Connemore. Connemore died. And you know what? I don't mind. <laughs> I, I do not like Connemore. Even if he's a decent gameplay unit, I just I, I think he's he's awful. So, I'm not going to be... I didn't risk F for him. Um, I considered going back and actually redoing the map to get him, but I'm not going to bother. Now, there are a few houses here. Most of them have pretty whatever dialogue, but there is one house that I actually really, really liked. Oh shit, it's not on, it's not on the wiki page for the script. What the fuck? Okay, hold on. I gotta, I gotta see if I can find this. Okay, so I was not able to find any script online that had this specific house, and... I'm wondering, like, I'm assuming that this has to be a Project Exile flavoring, but honestly, I really like it, and I want to talk about it. So I just, I went back and I played, like, two turns of the chapter again, it didn't take very long, 
and got this house again. And uh, so this guy is have some pure water. And he says, I was just about to sing of the Yid massacre, the start of the kingdom's decline. And I'm not going to sing it, but I am going to read it aloud for you guys, because I think it's, it's, very, it's a very cool little uh, poem. In seasons past, Leinster thrived with Quan upon its throne. The less esteemed Trevant had dreamed of making it his own. Quan's kin by marriage Sigurd was the victim of a coup. Quan had no stake, but told him, take the aid I bring to you. The limber bond of friendship was a noose around his neck. Quan planned a course with half his force embarking on the trek. And so with gallant mounted knights and queen upon her steed, he slowly marched determined parched across the desert yede. But oh, how Trevant had waited and followed hushed as death. His flyers would not be sated till Quan drew his final breath. So from the sky a swarm of foes came soaring into view, their numbers vast, their dragons fast, their lances aiming true. The startled knights could not escape, the desert held them fast. They had to stand upon the sand as bloody wounds amassed. The heart that bled for Sigurd led his forces to their end. His kingdom snatched, his queen dispatched, no respite for his friend. This world is not an ally, it is sinister and cruel. What Quan forgot, Trevant did not, the caring man's of the fool. And Sigurd he took to weeping as Thracia took their rule. There's no other code worth keeping. I, the caring man's the fool. That is just a, a wonderful little poem that I thought was, was really good. It really encapsulates... Honestly, I mean, it, it encapsulates the entire theme of FE4, which is that sometimes doing the right thing can have unintended consequences that cause more harm than good, right? And this is from the perspective of somebody who basically is worried that Leinster is going to get recaptured and has decided that he's going to sing a little bit about how Leinster fell in the first place. And I don't know. I just liked it. I thought it was it was really neat. I mean, I think it kind of speaks for itself, right? But anyway... That was all I wanted to say about that. I don't think any of the houses had any other interesting dialogue, but if you know of any other houses with good dialogue, you let me know, all right? Okay, now, I played through the map. Everyone got out. Connemore died. All the villagers escaped. Now, there was one other thing that I had to do because I realized, oh, shit, this is the chapter that I was going to use to have somebody get captured. Now, chapter 21X, as I said, is the chapter where you get characters back who you have lost as they have been captured. However, you do not get access to 21X unless you have a unit to get back. If you don't have any units who have been captured over the course of the game, you will not go to 21X. And... There are no other... Actually, that's not true. I mean, you can get captured in any chapter, but this is the most convenient... If you're not going to do it in Manster, you really need to do it here because it's, like, the most convenient place. Other than that, you know, you, you just end up running into the chance that it's just not going to go well for you and whatever. It doesn't matter. The person I ended up leaving behind was Miranda. I originally wanted her to just get captured, but it didn't end up working out that way. So I just... I had her standing right next to the gate and then everyone else went in and then she, I was like... <laughs> She's like, all right, see you, Miranda, and then Leaf went, went in. Um, so she got captured, and now I'm going to be able to go to 21X to get her back. There's some good stuff in 21X, even if I wasn't doing, like, an every chapter in the game podcast. 
I would probably be going to chapter 21x just because it's it's a decent chapter and you get some good stuff there. So, but yeah, so that's it for chapter 19. Really good. I, I mean, obviously, like we're not at the map gauntlet yet, but I already told said it's probably my favorite chapter in the game. But I'll talk a little bit more about comparisons at the end. Now, once you escape with Leaf, the chapter ends, and there's a very long cutscene here that goes into a lot of the details about how Leaf is feeling about all this, how Dorius being dead is affecting him, and all that stuff. But again, we're going to go into all of that at the end, so instead, the only relevant part of this conversation is the fact that Leaf is, you know, he's feeling very dejected, and August says, hey, I have some good news. There is a rebellion going on in Isaac, and if we hold out long enough, they will reach us and they will be able to help us. And the leader of that rebellion is Seleph. So we're seeing that FE4 Gen 2 has started and Seleph is kind of making his move, and we actually see exactly what has happened here, because in FE4 Chapter 7 we see the immediate aftermath of this move on Leaf's part. If you remember, at the beginning of FE4 Chapter 7, it cuts to Leaf's POV, and he talks about how he just made a move on Ulster that failed, and his entire army has been decimated. Now, obviously, this is not exactly the same scenario. I've always chosen to believe that FE4 was just, like, simplifying for the sake of what's going on, right? Like, Orson and Dagdar and... All these other guys might be there with Leaf, but we just don't see them in FE4. But there's also people who believe that it literally was his entire army, and now Leaf, Nana, and Finn are literally the only people left. I don't think that that's true, but it could possibly be. I don't. It doesn't really matter that much. But and so that they imply that because of that, FE5 is like a separate timeline or like a reimagining of events. I don't know if I if I buy all that, but I think. I think it's more like a, like, it, this is actually what was happening in FE4. It just was not shown to us due to the scale being so zoomed out that it just wasn't, it just wasn't relevant. But if you believe that it is just like, these are different events than what happened in FE4, that's also fine. It's, that's a completely reasonable conclusion to draw. There is some talk, like Leaf and, and August talk a little bit about Selaf, but this ties into everything that's going on with Leaf right now. So I'm going to wait to talk about that. And then if all the civilians escaped, you get a night crest. So all is well that ends well. Everything's good. And yeah, so that's chapter 19. Love it. Great. But I already talked about that, so I'm, I'm not going to deliberate any further. And instead, we're going to move right into chapter 20, which is called the Scion of Light. So in the opening narration for this chapter, we find out that it's been six months since the end of the last chapter. And... During that time, Leinster has been basically under siege the entire time. Leaf, as you know, kind of mentioned in the previous chapter, is kind of trying to buy time until Seleph can get there, basically. And it's not going too well. I mean, you know, six months is a, is a pretty decent amount of time to hold out for, but they're not, you know, they're they're not going to be able to hold out forever. It's it's really only a matter of time before the castle falls, and they're just putting off the inevitable, basically. After the opening narration, we get an enemy POV, which, you know, I'm going to stop making comments about it probably because otherwise we'll be here all day, but it's just funny how it happens in like basically every chapter. <laughs> and we see for the first time, I believe, Reinhardt, who we've heard a lot about, but we've never actually met him before. 
he's here and he's checking in with the general in charge of the siege whose name is Barat and he basically tells Barat you need to get this done fast you've been here for six months you have not accomplished what you have been stationed here to do and Bloom is not happy with you you need to get this done ASAP or there are going to be consequences probably deadly consequences and Barat says okay we will expedite this a little bit and starts ordering his men to do their last final push, basically, which they think is probably going to be the the, the final straw. You're not going to be able to hold out from this one. Oh, and we find out that Selef has crossed the border onto the Thracian Peninsula. So this is where they, they have just killed Ishtor and are making their way in this is where you would recruit tinny in fe fe fe4 chapter 7 so they're they're right on on the doorstep basically then we see we then cut to leaf's pov he and august are talking basically saying like oh we gotta we gotta set up the defenses leaf kind of muses a little bit about how you know they held out pretty long but it's probably not going to last for much longer and August says something that is pretty harsh, even by his standards. It makes me wonder if this is a, if this is a maybe an overly literal translation or something. I'm not sure, but I mean, August is obviously obviously kind of a dick, but I don't think he's ever really been this harsh to Leaf uh, directly. But uh, I'm I'm not sure. Anyway, what he says is, "Bah, you've become overfond of such feeble whining. It's unseemly for a prince of your stature." If you're not willing to fight to the last breath, you're betraying the memory of all who have sacrificed themselves to get us this far. Don't forget the big picture. We're keeping the bulk of the enemy's forces busy here, which frees Celis' army to march through Thracia unimpeded. You mustn't give up before we're able to merge our forces. So most of that is fine. It's just general pep talk. And it's definitely not out of character for August to be, like, kind of blunt with Leaf. But I think saying that he's become overly fond of feeble whining... Is like a little, I don't know, that's a, that's a little bit excessive for him, I think, personally. I'm not sure, though. Um, anyway, Leaf probably deserved it, but we'll, again, we'll talk about all that at the end. Now, this map is really interesting on a lot of levels. First of all, it has a very unique victory condition where it's a defend map, yes, but you also have to kill the boss. And it's not one of those things where, like, oh, killing the boss ends the map early. You need to do both. The map will not end on turn 15 if the boss is still alive. So preferably getting him out of the way as soon as possible would be helpful, but you don't necessarily have to. In fact, you know, he starts moving on turn 15, so it might be a little easier to just wait him out and, and have him come to you. I'm not sure. It's whatever you want to do. I managed to take him out pretty early, but not everyone's going to be able to do that, I guess. This is the only other defense map in the game besides chapter 14, and honestly, I really wish Kaga had done more of them. Because I think he he really knew how to design a defense map. This is a really good map. It's not as good as Chapter 14, in my opinion. But it's definitely quite awesome. And I think a big part of that is the same thing that made Chapter 14 so good. Which is that the enemies here are legitimately very threatening. And they, they really force you to put yourself out there. And you can't just hole up in the keep and, and not come out at all. You really need to make an active effort to push forward but overextending is very possible so you need to you need to be careful in that sense so i don't know it's it's uh it's cool i like it it's a good map there's so many reinforcements there's so 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 many reinforcements and a lot of them are very strong there's magic enemies there's ballista there's physical enemies there's all sorts of different uh mages and 
There are uh, there are sages and clerics that have utility staffs to help to uh, you know help their help their guys. One particularly funny addition is there are a uh, there are some clerics or sages I don't remember which that have unlock staffs, which are only supposed to be usable by Tina. I don't know why Tina is the only person who can use them on our side, uh, but everyone can use them on the enemy side, I guess. Anyway. Uh, there is a cell, like a jail cell, in the castle that has some red units in it, and I guess they're supposed to be like the the people you captured in chapter eighteen or something like that. It doesn't directly correlate to like how many enemies you captured in that map or anything like that. They're just they just always are there. Uh, I guess it's assumed that they're maybe they're maybe they're enemies who got captured over the six month time skip that we don't see. I'm not sure, but. Anyway, one of the sages will unlock that door to the jail cell and have them come out and start fighting you. And it's actually a really neat idea that never really gets repeated. And I think that that's a shame. It probably should be. Um, your army is positioned really weirdly. And I don't necessarily like it in this map as much as I do in the other maps. Because I think it's kind of frustrating to be so spread out you know there there's a chest in this map and it's possible for your thief your thieves to all end up like on the completely opposite side of the map eh, i don't know it's it's it doesn't i don't really feel like it adds anything to this map other than frustration whereas the past couple maps i think it actually enhanced the experience to a certain extent it made you have to approach the map in like a more interesting way whereas this is just like oh it just adds extra tedium it adds a few more turns i don't know i didn't really get much of a kick out of it to be honest but I did say that all three maps in this episode use the positioning mechanic, or I guess the lack of a positioning mechanic, in an interesting way, which is kind of true. Like, I, I get what they were going for here, right? It It's kind of interesting to be to have to, like, fight your way out of an unfavorable position, but it also kind of just makes Leaf look like a dumbass. Like, why, is, why are Tina and Lara, you know, defending, like, the front lines, basically? It's just, it's a little odd. Um, I don't think that actually happened to me, but it is possible, and I, I just think that that's funny. There are some good items to steal here. First of all, there's a Master Seal in the chest, which is valuable because there are a lot of characters you want to promote in this game. And I think you probably will have most of them promoted by now, but you might want the extra Master Seal. It's definitely worthwhile to get it. I ended up having it stolen by a sage with the one of the Unlock Staff Sages. And so I had to go up and uh, and steal it from him, and then rescue Pan out of the way. It was it was interesting. The boss has a, a master lance and a fortify staff. He's a baron. We're actually starting to see barons for the first time, and barons have like a rank in fucking everything, uh, except wind. <laughs> he has C rank in wind for some reason, uh, but uh, every, you know A and everything else. He has a scroll. If you're keeping track of the scrolls, I think that this has got to be the last one, right? There's no way there's there's many more than this. I think this is either the last one or there's like one or two left. I'm not sure. So yeah, I mean, it's it's relatively straightforward. You just got to hold out. I think that the unlock staff guys are going to catch a lot of people off guard. The enemies can break down the walls. You can actually see on various walls there are like cracks in them. And uh, when they can, enemies will like go for those cracks and blow down the walls and make them traversable. This is actually the only way you can get out of some of these rooms. Uh, actually, no, that's not true. There are doors you can unlock, but it's it's probably easier to get out, especially if you're in that room on the lower right. And yeah, you kind of you kind of like pile in. You have to be a little bit 
aggressive if you want especially if you want like good items but especially when the when the long range ballista come in that's when things start to get really hairy i actually ended up losing xavier on this map which i didn't reset for i'm i'm considering it like technically i i haven't played chapter 21 yet so i could go, just go back and redo chapter 20 that wouldn't be unreasonable i don't think but i'm probably just going to leave him dead because i don't really need to have everyone you know I, I don't i don't really mind leaving him dead it's really not that big of a deal he's not as good as i thought he was to be honest i mean he's got good defense but he's still taking like a shit ton of damage from these ballista and he has a cost so he has the same problem as dagdar where he just gets shot a whole bunch by by different ballista and even if they wouldn't double him otherwise you know they he he gets hit like two three maybe even four times and he just you know can't catch a break i guess oh there's a little i guess deception is the wrong word but you might be tempted to buy torches from this shop but you actually don't really need to there's only one more fog of war map in the entire game and it is quite annoying and quite bullshit but you're probably fine like i don't know about you guys but i have i think i have a torch left and i definitely have like a couple uses of the torch staff so i should be fine uh but i would i would really only pick up one or two if you don't have any, because it's not really going to be very useful for you going forward. Killing the boss is actually really easy. I mean, maybe it's just because I have Asvel, or uh, who did I do it with? It wasn't Asvel, was it? It was Oh, it was Marita. I had Marita do it. Marita's really fucking strong. I have, I have a absolutely busted Marita. So she just walked up and killed the boss, and it was, it was pretty good. And then she had to get the hell out of there, because otherwise she was just going to get her ass kicked. So, yeah, there's not really a whole lot left to say about this map. I think it's good. I think it uses some really interesting ideas and is reasonably challenging without being like overly bullshit. I do think the reinforcement spam is a little much. I kind of wish that they had chilled out on that a little bit, but it's not really the end of the world. I think it's still a good map and uh, probably my least favorite of the three we played in this episode. But I think it's I, I might have already mentioned this, but having an episode of this game with entirely good chapters is up to this point unprecedented and spoiler alert will not be happening again the remaining two episodes of this of this series or of this uh game will not have all good maps let me tell you that much at least i'm pretty sure they won't i don't remember the late game super well but i remember not liking it very much so you know we'll see so after turn 15 comes around if the boss is dead or after you kill the boss if it's after turn 15 the map will end, the enemy will start retreating, and August tells Leaf that it's because Selif is here. Selif has come to help us, and it's going to be great. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. That's going to be great. They're going to collab. They're going to do like a, they're going to host the podcast together. It's going to be fantastic. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> this is why I shouldn't record late at night, but here I am. Anyway, Selif is here. Uh, he has sent a emissary or a messenger to leaf to communicate that that he is here and it is actually diarmud who is a character who we re uh, remember from fe4 he is nana's brother and there's some dialogue here uh well there's dialogue here no matter what happens but if nana is alive she will get a little bit of time with him and they have a nice little conversation a very interesting one actually so here let me let me find it yeah so diarmud says that he only learned about nana from lewin and they talk about Lewin for a minute, and supposedly, according to Lewin, Lachesis is still alive. Now, this is something we speculated on back in Chapter 6, I think, 
wherever we found out that people have been going missing in the desert or whatever, the implication there is obviously that the Loptir cult is turning people to stone. And we know that Lachesis vanished in the desert, so putting two and two together, it stands to reason that Lachesis would be a stone statue somewhere in the desert. Now, that isn't explicitly what they say here, I want to make that clear, but it's the only thing that makes sense, right? Like, if Lewin knows that Lachesis is alive, we know where she disappeared, it just makes sense that this would be what it is. And they say that they're going to search for her together after the war is over. So that's nice, you know, they're probably going to find her at that point. And uh, hopefully Sarah's alive, <laughs> because otherwise they ain't getting shit done. But, you know, uh, we'll we'll see, I guess. Diarmud then asks Leaf if it is okay for him to transfer into Leaf's army, away from Salaf's army. And Leaf says, sure, yeah, absolutely. So Diarmud is now recruited, and we will talk about him next chapter, because we are able to, uh, we're able to play as him for the first time at the beginning of next chapter. So we'll talk about him then. But for now... That's it. That's chapters 18, 19, and 20. I really liked all of these chapters. It is a great set of chapters overall. Probably the... I mean, chapter 19, I've already said, is is my favorite map in the game. Chapter 18 might be in my top three as well. I think it goes probably chapter 19, chapter 14, and then chapter 18. And 20 is up there as well. So we, we, got, we got some really solid maps this time around. And I was very happy to to play them and i'm very excited to get into the late games where we can talk about how bs some of these maps are at least as far as i remember maybe i'm wrong maybe i'll prove myself wrong so let's make good on that promise from earlier and talk a little bit about the major plot events of these chapters so it's kind of hard to overstate how impactful these events are and how central these are to the game because i don't know about the rest of you guys but for me when i think of fe5 and specifically fe5's plot and its story this is the moment that comes to mind first this is leaf's defining moment as a character at least in this game you can argue that he gets more in fe4 but for this game this is the moment for leaf he fucks up he makes a huge mistake and it backfires massively. And, oh, I didn't even mention, when Leaf makes this mistake, I, I think it's at the in chapter 19 or maybe chapter 20, I'm not sure. But at some point, he loses a leadership star. He had two for a while, and now he only has one, which is really, really good, cool gameplay story integration. I love that shit. It's awesome. This is the moment that sets Leaf apart from other lords in the series for so many people. I know a ton of people who really like Leaf and consider him one of the best lords in the series, if not the best. And when asked why, they usually point to this moment, at least first. You know, this is this is probably the biggest thing for a lot of people. And it's really easy to see why. I mean, like, how many other lords in the series fuck up this badly and have to deal with the ramifications of that? The answer is a few, actually, but it, it's a little bit different, right? Like, I, when I think of lords that fuck up, besides Leaf, I think of, like, Erica at the end of Sacred Stones, when she gives the, the stone to Leon. Spoilers, I guess, but... Uh, or I think of Selica in, in FE15, when she goes with Jeddah, right? Like, these things are, are monumental fuck-ups. But 
they don't really fuck up in the same way as Leaf does here. Like, this is a genuine tactical error on Leaf's part, whereas the others, you know, it's mostly because they gave into their emotions or they were basically the the flaw quote-unquote that got in their way and that caused them to make this mistake is actually their virtue you know what i mean like celica is a kind caring person she wants everyone to be happy and to be safe and so she makes this decision but it doesn't really feel like a character flaw per se it just feels like she's taking her her virtue and and taking it too far i'm not sure if this is making sense but i think i think it's a key distinction that you need to make here because leaf does not leaf's mistake here is purely tactical he he gets a big ego which is not in any way a a strong positive trait to have it's just not and it causes him to fuck up and that's cool that's that's awesome now i am going to make some complaints i'm gonna file file some complaints with the complaint department I want to preface all that, though, by saying that this is probably the best moment in the story still. There are some moments earlier that I think are, are comparable, maybe a little bit better. Like, I think some of the stuff with the bandits in Chapter 8X was was maybe my favorite moment in the game, narratively. But this stuff is, is also really, really, really good. So I wanted to get that out of the way, because even though I have some criticisms of this, I just want to make it real clear that I do really love these plot points and that I just wish that they had been tweaked a little bit to make them even better. So I think the biggest criticism I have of this is that it doesn't really feel in line with previously established flaws in Leaf's character. Now Leaf is is a very flawed character. We've seen plenty of times where he's fucked up or made small mistakes or just, just in general have, has not been a excellent well-rounded human being again i think chapter 8x is like the prime example of this he's so short-sighted that he and naive frankly that he can't see why you know these bandits would do these things and just assumes that they're that they're evil monsters or whatever it is he has a very short-sighted view of thracia uh the you know the the country of thracia he he hates them and he thinks that they're monsters does not want to side with them uh he really puts up a fight about that in chapter six he's frankly kind of sheltered which you know we've seen a little bit with him denying the existence of the child hunts and i speculated a little bit about how i thought that that was because he has just been protected his whole life and and people have helped him out of the kindness of their hearts so he has not really been exposed to how cruel and unjust the world could be so there's plenty of material to work with for this and they kind of do it a little bit in in one of the cutscenes but we'll we'll get there we'll, we'll get to that in a second but for the most part this is fueled mostly by a new flaw that leaf has developed which is fine it's okay to for him to have another flaw that is that is introduced here but leaf's ego has not really been a sticking point for him up to this point right like he's always been relatively humble he has very strong opinions on people who are you know who, who he perceives as bad right so you could see that as as an ego thing like he thinks he's better than them kind of even if he's not doing it consciously but that's a little bit of a stretch i, I think 
it's it's really just hard for me to, to see him as being egotistical. And you could argue he's not being egotistical. I think there's more to it than that. I think there are a lot of layers to this decision that he's making. But I think it's pretty widely accepted, at least from the circles that I'm in, that a big factor in, in this decision is that Leaf got Leinster back. He was feeling real good about himself. And he said, you know what? We can get Alster back too. We can do this. We we got this. And if, you know, it fucked up. And the exact details of it, as I've mentioned, change depending on whether or not you have Miranda. If you have Miranda, she basically says, hey, you need to f- fulfill your promise to me right now. Go get Alster back for me right now. And Leaf says, okay. And I don't like that. I actually really don't like that. I think that that sucks a lot because it takes, I, I mean, obviously it's the Leaf's decision, right? But it feels like it's taking the agency away from Leaf, right? It, it's having another character come in and tell him, Leaf, you need to do this. Um, it's, it's, it's basically someone else spurring him on. Like, like she is, she is making this demand of him and she is, you know, basically cashing this check that she has which is like you owe me you fucked me over earlier you owe me one and that just feels like it takes some of the autonomy out of leaf's hands even though like yeah he could say no but i mean he's not gonna say no why would he say no right it's not you know it's not in his character to say no so to me that feels like much less of a flaw as it is you know in the same situation as as erica Arcelica, where he wants to do the right thing and he just does it bad, which is less interesting to me than him having an actual genuine character flaw, which is that he he's getting a little cocky and a little bit full of himself. The other scenario I feel like I'm a little bit more open to, which is if you do not have Miranda, the village woman comes in and says, hey, we organized a rebellion. We lost, basically, and we're getting our asses kicked. You need to come help us. I'm a little bit more open to this because it feels like less of a demand that is being put on Leaf and more of a of a request, right? This person is saying, please, can you help us? We're in danger. We really need you to help us. But she is not she is not in any kind of position of authority over Leaf. Leaf doesn't owe this person anything, right? And it would still very much be out of character for him to refuse here, but I also think that it doesn't feel like anyone is forcing his hand here. He is making the call more so than if Miranda's alive where it feels like she is basically saying, you, you need to do this. She is making the call for him, which I mean, maybe maybe that's just my read. I don't I don't like that about about Miranda being here. Um, but, you know, she's uh, I don't like Miranda in general, to be honest. Speaking of characters, I don't like I didn't talk much about this. Uh, I don't think. But after after there's been a bit of a gap between recording chapter 19 and recording chapter 20, I had a, a nice long think about our friend Connemore. Man, I really fucking hate Connemore. The more I think about him, the more I think he might be my least favorite character in this game. Because he's such a piece of shit. He, he is so obsessed with the well-being of Miranda specifically that he is willing to let his people die and even in in the case of chapter 19 actively chase after them to bring them back to the empire to be executed because he doesn't want miranda to be killed 
which is an understandable motivation, but he, like, he is not, like, he, he is, I, okay, so, the, I need to, I need to cross this bridge, I need to cross this bridge, I know, Miranda and Connemore in their endings are implied to end up in a relationship, this is really fucked up, because Miranda is 14 years old, and, I mean, I'm, I don't even think I need to explain why that's fucked up, right, like, I'm not, I'm not even gonna bother going into more detail about that, you all know that that, that that's fucked up, at least I hope you do, and, yeah, so, so, obviously, elephant in the room, that's weird, right, but putting that aside for a second, it is understandable, you know, if he is in, if he is in love with Miranda, it is very easy to see why he would not make the decision to go against the Empire and risk her dying, but that doesn't mean I have to like it. Just because it's an, a decision that I understand doesn't mean that it doesn't make him a piece of shit, right? Like, just because he wants some wants some teenage coochie, he decides to, you know, fuck over his entire country, basically. And either that or, or he legitimately thinks that the life of the ruling figure in Ouster is more important than the people who actually live there. Which is not, like, obviously if this were realistic to real world medieval politics, then that is completely believable. But Fire Emblem Lords have always been, like, very unrealistic in that regard. They are much more receptive to, to having the common people be, like, a priority. And so it just feels out of character for, for a person who we are ostensibly supposed to feel is good and just and right to have him be like a commentary on knight's willingness to let the common people suffer and die for for you know royalty on the other hand we do see this come up a couple times with august and dorius so maybe it's not too out of too out of the question but i don't know um regardless this is all to say that i really fucking don't like connemore and i think there's a really solid chance he ends up on the bottom of of the list for characters in in this game i i think he's a piece of shit and i don't like him that is all anyway where was i uh yeah so miranda telling leaf to go invade ulster feels like it takes some agency away from him because even though it is his choice it feels like she is kind of pushing him in that direction and and lording over him with this fact of like hey you know you promised you would do this for me we need you to do it right now and that just feels worse to me than someone coming and pleading with leaf for help and him making the decision to help them anyway i've gotten a little bit far away from the from the main point here which is that this is not really something that leaf has been shown to struggle with in the past like he's always wanted to help people and even to to the point where he is willing to deviate from his main goal right like you think back to like chapter two where he you know uh, nana and marita have been captured and they need to go save them but he is still willing to step in and save these villagers even though you know he doesn't know or care about them at all he just thinks it's the right thing to do which it is and he's willing to put Marita and Nana's rescue on hold for that, which definitely feels like you could extrapolate that to what we see in these chapters. The problem that I have is that it feels, it just feels like so stupid, right? Like he's not, he, 
he is blatantly ignored. At least in chapter two, you can argue he didn't have advisors at that point. August does not join him by that point. Dorius comes in like way after that point. So he doesn't have anyone except Finn to guide him at that point, basically. And Finn is just going to go along with whatever he wants, right? So Leaf has never, I don't think, I, I, I could be wrong about this, but I do not think that Leaf has ever ever disagreed with his advisors i mean in in situations where dorius and august are opposed he might side with one of them over the other like in the route split right is he gonna side with dorius or is he gonna side with august that happens sometimes right but this is one of the rare instances where both dorius and august are on the same page and say leaf you should not do this this is going to be a disaster and leaf just ignores them which just feels like weirdly out of character for him i i don't know Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe you guys can see something in Leaf that I don't that makes this more believable. But it's it's just a little bit odd for me, I guess. It doesn't feel in line with the character that we've gotten to know up to this point. I could very easily see how he could get here, right? Again, I think having him get a little bit of an inflated ego is not unreasonable at this point in his, in his journey, right? He just got his home castle back and he's ready to go. He feels really good. So that that part's fine. I understand that. It it's just a, it feels a little bit sloppy that they would introduce this new character trait of his like at the at the last minute. Uh I guess not the last minute, but you know, like right before it becomes necessary for it to move the plot along. Maybe I'm I'm making a big deal out of nothing. Again, I still do really like these plot points. It's just a little bit odd to me. Now, I did see a really good take from one of my friends, actually Spike, uh, the guy who I was on with a few episodes ago, the the 14, 14X and 15 episode, I think it was. He said something that I found really interesting, which is that it is kind of an extension of what Dorius and August have been teaching him the entire game. They've been teaching him these moral lessons that he has taken with him throughout his adventure, you know, like helping the common people honoring your promises being the ruler that you that you were meant to be right like these are things that they are telling him to do the entire game and i think in this moment where leaf decides to attack alster he is in his mind living up to that right especially the helping the common people part like the common people are dying and leaf is not able to see the fact that if he goes now he's not going to be able to help them anyway but this is something that August has been encouraging him to do the entire game. And I think that's that's a really good point that I hadn't considered. And I thank Spike for bringing that to my attention because it's not something I would have even thought about otherwise. So I don't know. I think I think it's it, it's an interesting take. Like they kind of set him up in this way where he was always going to make this decision. I still don't think that that necessarily outweighs the fact that he has always gone along with what they have suggested because he he's he's always been like generally willing to defer to their judgment he is he is humble enough to recognize that he is not strong enough to do this on his own he needs his advisors he needs the people who are smarter than him and more tactically inclined than he is he recognizes that he always has and so it just feels a little weird to me that all of a sudden he would decide that he knows best and that august and dorius are wrong and I mean, I guess, it, again, it's not unreasonable. I don't think given the circumstances, it's just a little weird to me. It feels a little sloppy and like they could have tweaked it just a little bit to make it a little bit more 
believable for Leaf. Um, like, for example, I think they could have... Well, it's tricky, right? Because we we know how this goes down in, in FE4, right? Actually, no, that's not true. Because by the time FE4 is in swing, it's chapter 20. Oh, okay, yeah, I got it. Here's Here's what you could do, right? So say that the woman shows up. Just get Miranda out of there, right? Fuck Miranda. Get her out of there. Have the woman show up in both routes and have her say, Leaf, you know, we've started a rebellion. We're getting our asses kicked. Please come help us. By the way, supposedly they have enlisted the help of the Thracian Draco Knights and they are on their way and are going to try to kill us as well. Now, Leaf, being the Thracia hater that he is, I think that that's more likely to get him to jump the gun and assume that if Thracia is involved, things are going to go very badly and that everyone's going to get slaughtered, right? I think that that seems, that seems like in character for Leaf because Leaf fucking hates Thracia. Now, obviously, the problem with that is that Thracia would not help the Empire in this way. Thracia has very much been shown to be doing its own thing, to not be on good terms with the Empire. But, A, you could just have it be a rumor, right? Like, maybe it's not actually even true. Or, I think the, the more likely explanation that you could do is have the Thracian Draco Knights actually show up in Chapter 19. Maybe have them fight for a few turns. And then have Trevant show up and say, hey, we're not helping them anymore we're we're pulling back and we're gonna we're gonna try to do our own thing which would set up perfectly what we see in chapter eight of fe4 where the thracian draco knights are basically not even fighting for the empire anymore at that point it's a little sloppy you would have to do some work on it i'm not a professional writer or anything like that but i think that that would be more fitting because it is in line with the flaw that we've already seen that leaf has which is that he is very quick to assume the worst and jump the gun when Thracia is involved. Either way, I think that what's in the game is good, but I just think it could have been better. I spent a lot of time talking to basically just say that. I think that what's in the game is good, but I also think it could have been better. That's that's fine. It's I mean, this is this I don't think I'm I'm spending too much time on it, right? Because this is for a lot of people, including myself, the defining moment of Thracia's story and the one where Leaf really shows off how he differentiates himself from other lords. So I don't know. I think I think it's worthy of a, of a long form discussion like this. I just you know, when you can boil it down to a sentence like that, I can see why it might sound a little long winded. Anyway, uh, the last thing I want to talk about in regards to this is that I think Dorius really shows off as a character here. The fact that he is willing to sacrifice himself, like he knows what he's walking into, right? He does not intend to walk out of this alive. So I think, you know, when he goes down to Ulster, he knows I'm I'm not coming back. August, you need to look after Leaf. And they have that, like, little... This is actually one of my favorite moments in the game where Dorius and August are, like, talking over Leaf's head a little bit. Like, they both are on the same page about what's about to happen. Leaf is too naive to pick up on it, even though it's, like, kind of really obvious. Um, but he's, he you know, Leaf just can't see it because he's young or because he's, you know, just blinded by by his desire to help or whatever. He doesn't pick up on it, so. And yeah, he, he resigns himself to the fact that he's going to die and he needs August at Leaf's side to help reclaim the rest of the peninsula. That's a really cool moment, and while I still think I'm ultimately Team August, this definitely puts some points in Dorius's column, so. We stand. Rest in peace, Dorius, you will be missed. Even though you were kind of a dickbag, but, you know, who cares, really?
And that is it for our chapters for the episode. Now, for our map gauntlet, I mean, we'll we'll rush through this real quick because I've already basically told you guys. Chapter 19 is my favorite map of this chapter. It is also my favorite map of the game. I am going to put it above chapter 14 and say that this is our new reigning champion of Thracia 776. And I don't see it being dethroned. I really don't. There might be some chapters that surprise me and are better than I remember them being, but I don't think that any of them are going to be chapter 20, or chapter 19, sorry. I think the fact that it uses Thracia's weird mechanics in such interesting ways that actually, for once, enhance the gameplay <laughs> instead of just exclusively detracting from it, I think almost makes this entire journey up to this point worth it. Almost. So, we're getting a lot of news about Fire Emblem Engage, which is really cool. We're getting some stuff on the different characters. We have some some names for some of these guys. Vander, who's the Jagan, it seems like. We got Cram and Fram, who are some early game units who are going to help you out. I think that's all we got for... for oh, we got Alfred. He's pretty cool, um, it seems like. So we got, some, we got some stuff going on here. Actually, this stuff might have been out when I did the last episode. Shit. <laughs> um, uh, oh, well. Whatever, we're talking about it now. Um, I'm still reserving judgment until I have the game in my hands, basically. Uh, I don't really I'm not really plugged into everything that's going on with, with Engage, but you know, I don't really I don't really have a lot of comments to say on it. I don't really know that much about it. It doesn't seem like we're getting a whole lot of tidbits from Twitter or anything like that, so not a whole lot in the news department. Now, in the me department, there's a fair bit going on. I have been watching a lot of anime. I finished Inuyasha. I finished Yu Yu Hakusho. I finished Rakugo Shinju. And now I'm currently watching March Comes In Like a Lion. So that's exciting. I liked all those other shows. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll do some kind of anime related like bonus episodes or something like that at some point. I'm not sure. I can barely get the, <laughs> the actual episodes out in a timely manner. So, uh, and then for for games, I'm I'm playing a little bit. I uh, I got my hands on a PlayStation Four. I've been wanting to get a PlayStation Four for a very long time, but I I never managed to get one. Uh, not managed. I I could have bought one at any time, but they're expensive, right? So one day my friend tells me, "Hey, I will sell you my PlayStation Four just as soon as just as soon as I get my hands on a PlayStation 5. And I said, that's great. And this was, this was like right before it came out. So I was like, all right, cool. You know, a few months in, he'll get it. And then I'll get the PS4. That's awesome. Um, obviously, if you've even attempted or been at all plugged in to, to anything about the PS5, you know that it is notoriously difficult to get one. Although I think that might be starting to be alleviated because I've been seeing a lot more people get them recently. So I'm not sure if that's uh, maybe, maybe something's going on. Maybe they're getting the supply a little bit beefed up i'm not sure but anyway it took my friend two years to get a uh to get a, a playstation 5 and so he finally sold me his ps4 and i have a few games with it i'm very excited i have already beaten shadow of the colossus which is a fantastic game i had been you know i had been hearing so much about it for years and years and years and finally i managed to play it. i played the ps4 remake and it's it's just really fucking good you know, a couple, a couple bosses here and there, you know, I think could have been better, but it's, you know, it's, it's a really solid game. 
I have Persona 4 Royal, which I do, I do genuinely love Persona. I know that there's some some people sometimes people don't a lot of people don't like Persona and that's fine. It has a lot of shit in there that I don't necessarily like either. But I do really I love Persona I, I Persona 4 Golden. It's the only one that I've played. So, I guess I shouldn't say that I like Persona. I like Persona 4 Golden a lot. But uh, I haven't played any of the other games. So, I'm very excited to get to Persona 5 Royal and experience that for the first time. He gave me Dragon Quest 11, which is pretty cool. Uh, I never played a Dragon Quest game before. Actually, no, that's not true. I played Dragon Quest 9. I didn't like it very much, but apparently Dragon Quest 11 is very different. And then I bought, but I have not yet played Spider-Man PS4, the game of the year version. So I'm excited about that. I love Spider-Man. Spider-Man is my favorite superhero. And I love most of the recent movies about him. And I love Spider-Man 2 for the GameCube and PlayStation 2. So I am I am super excited to play this game because it, it seems like it actually really captures that vibe more than, than any game before or after, you know, Spider-Man for the PS2. So, or Spider-Man 2 for the PS2. So I'm very excited to, to test out the shiny new toy. Um, you know, I have, uh, I have some cool stuff to play. And I will definitely report back to you guys uh, with with some, you know, some progress and uh, and see how see how things are going. Hopefully, it doesn't distract me from getting this episode edited and uploaded, which I'm hoping to have done by the end of this week, maybe even the middle of this week, if I can do it quickly enough. I'm not sure though. We'll have to see. So, anyway, uh, next episode we are going to be tackling chapters 21, 21x, and 22. So look forward to that. We're almost to the end of the game. We have next episode, and then the episode after that, we're going to be doing the rest of the chapters. And then the episode after that is like the final thoughts, wrap up, any additional info that I want to share with you guys. And then we'll be done. So so look forward to that. I'm thinking, you know, early December finish date is not unrealistic. Although I do need to hurry it up a little bit for sure. But, you know, we'll we'll see how that goes. So uh, I will talk to you all next time and have a good rest of your day. I'm trying to be more active on Twitter. So so you might see me poke around on Twitter a little bit more. But, uh, you know, other than that, have a nice rest of your day. Bye-bye.